In the morning of April 14, 1561, at daybreak, between 4 and 5 a.m., a dreadful apparition occurred on the sun. And then this was seen in Nuremberg in the city, before the gates and in the country, by many men and women. At first there appeared in the middle of the sun two blood-red semicircular arcs, just like the moon in its last quarter. And in the sun, above and below and on both sides, the color was blood. There stood a round ball of partly dull, partly black, ferrous color. Likewise, there stood on both sides, and as a torus about the sun, such blood-red ones and other balls in large number, about three in a line and four in a square, also some alone. In between these globes there were visible a few blood-red crosses, between which there were blood-red strips, becoming thicker to the rear, and in the front malleable like the rods of reed grass, which were intermingled among them two big rods, one on the right, the other to the left. And within the small and big rods there were three, also four and more globes. These all started to fight among themselves, so that the globes, which were first in the sun, flew out to the ones standing on both sides thereafter. The globes standing outside the sun in the small and large rods flew into the sun. Besides, the globes flew back and forth among themselves and fought vehemently with each other for over an hour. When the conflict in and again out of the sun was most intense, they became fatigued to such an extent that they all, as said above, fell from the sun down upon the earth as if they all burned, and they then wasted away on the earth with immense smoke. After all this, there was something like a black spear, very long and thick-sided. The shaft pointed to the east, the point pointed west. Whatever such signs mean, God alone knows, although we have seen, shortly, one after another, many kinds of signs on the heaven, which are sent to us by the Almighty God to bring us to repentance. We still are, unfortunately, so ungrateful that we despise such high signs and miracles of God, or we speak of them with ridicule and discard them to the wind in order that God may send us a frightening punishment on account of our ungratefulness. After all, the God-fearing will by no means discard these signs, but will take it to heart as a warning of their merciful Father in heaven, will mend their lives and faithfully beg God that he may avert his wrath, including the well-deserved punishment on us, so that we may temporarily here and perpetually there live as his children. For it, may God grant us his help. Amen. Hans Glosser Welcome everyone, you are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi and Adam Coons to talk about... UFOs. Now, after that long reading and considering the subject, the theme today really should be Giorgio Moroder's The Chase, but Zelwyn tells me we couldn't afford the rights to it for a proper <laughs> art bill tribute. That's fine. Our own synthwave score, our own vaporwave aesthetic will continue nonetheless. Well, gentlemen, how are you? Adam, how are things out east, as they say, in Luther country? Yeah, yeah, out east uh, in the old Northwest Territory. Things are very sunny. The garden is growing and all is well. The skies are not leaden anymore. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's a happy day. Uh, Zellin, how about your way? A little, little dry right now, as I understand it. Yeah, it is a little dry, although I should say everything east of Bismarck is east to me. So there you go. But Oof. anyway. All right. <laughs> Yikes. No, we are a little behind in rain right now. The average, I think we're down back behind about five inches or so than what we typically are at this time of the year. So we're certainly going to be praying for rain and asking God to, you know, bring us rain because we certainly need it. I mean, this is the time of year that the corn especially needs a good dose of, of rain to really get growing. So, yeah. So, I mean, things are a little, little tough right now, but overall, I think everything is going pretty well besides. So. Very good. You know, warm, rather mild here right now in uh, central Illinois out here um, in this this farm country. Things are growing well, a little bit too well. The weeds, of course, uh, constant constant problem. But hey, that's what we were promised in Genesis, right? And there we are. <laughs> well, gentlemen, it's uh, long awaited this episode. It's going to be a very fun one. We're going to talk about UFOs, aliens, and such. Now, why might we be talking about this? 
we're talking about it because people think about it and they watch shows about it and they listen to podcasts about it. And the church usually does not address such topics because I don't know why. Maybe a <laughs> reluctance or a lack of acquaintance with the writings of Captain Edward Ruppelt or many other causes <laughs> lead us to neglect the things that people are actually thinking about. That doesn't mean that we have to accept everything that we're told as the church, obviously not, but we do need to address the things that people are actually occupying their minds with. Mm -hmm. Certainly. Um, it's something that is, again, in popular culture. We're starting to see even government sources release so-called videos of so-called unidentified flying objects, curiously released in the middle of the pandemic. But, uh, you know, that's a little, <laughs> a little more Alex Jones than we want to talk about right now. <laughs> We are not going to sell you any vitality supplements today. So That's right. <laughs> you got to get your super male vitality from another podcast, another online radio show. Yeah, so they are in people's minds. I mean, these things come and go. Uh, there's the saucer craze of the 50s, sort of the new age aliens of the 60s and 70s, space wars in the 80s, and then, of course, the X-Files in the 90s, and all the alien autopsy and fun stuff like that. Jonathan Frakes, where are you today? So, yeah, we um, this is something that's going to keep popping up, and it's something that cannot simply be dismissed as a pop culture phenomenon, as we're going to see. It's something that we as enlightened Christians, and by that I mean illumined by God the Holy Spirit, um, enabled to read right. the scriptures and, and understand you know, his revelation to us through that word, we should be able to discern these signs, so to speak. And as we look through history, and we'll see how much time we can actually spend on it, because once you start digging into this, this is a <coughs> excuse me, this is a phenomenon that goes back, you know, much much further than than the fifties or World War II or whatever. And so the questions we have before us are, you know, why talk about this, uh, which we've already answered, and you know what what is at stake here? What's really going on? And I do think that there is a reasonable Christian approach to this with some cautions. And so with that said, let's let's dig in. What is when we say UFO, what do we mean? We mean it's a it's a term invented by Edward Ruppelt who worked on the Air Force's probably most serious investigation into the phenomenon in the late 40s and the 50s, Project Blue Book, and he coined that term in order to replace a bunch of terms that had arisen from the 19th century onward to discuss things that were generally in the air, sometimes in, you know, sort of just above ground, but usually far above in the air, uh, sometimes described as crash landing, things that could not be identified. So this predates man-controlled heavier-than-air flight. It goes back to when people were seeing what they described as mystery airships or dirigibles in the 19th century. But the thing that you read is from the 16th century, from the you know Lutheran city of Nuremberg. So you can hear even from that, that there have always been what very ancient people long before the 16th century would have called things like prodigies or omens in the sky. And so uh, the name for them, unidentified flying object, is, the, is one that Ruppelt comes up with to cover everything and, and to try to be as neutral and non-judgmental as possible because he found it to be a problem that people already made up their minds about what was going on and therefore did not remain open in inquiring about the subject. Which I, which I mean you see even today because when you hear most people talk, just say it to your average person and you start talking about UFOs, they're usually going to be fairly dismissive about it, right? So I mean, even if he's trying to be fairly neutral about it. I mean, we, we do still have that same kind of prejudice going on that that I guess he's trying to avoid, right? Right. And it's a fairly generalized term. We we don't know what these things are, but, but what do they all have in common? They appear in the sky. And so UFO becomes a right. very broad category. Yeah. And it doesn't just cover things that are easily identifiable or dismissible. And, and he came up with the term especially because he found not only dismissiveness, but what he thought of as credulity. So he would actually kick mm -hmm. people off his team when he found them to be either dismissive, 
rather than just open-minded taking in the data as reported from the entire country, or too credulous. That is, they thought that usually in his time that there were men who were coming to save us, uh, to bring us messages of peace, sort of like, you know, sort of proto-UN General Assembly type aliens. He would get rid of both sets of people if he found them to have become too sort of closed-minded about the subject. And I, I don't know about Ruppelt's religious affiliation or lack thereof at all, but I find the attitude helpful because I, I find that when discussion of this, like you said, Zawan, I think a lot of people are dismissive. And then other people think of it as they think about a lot of related phenomena that we're going to discuss later on. I find that people place great hope in these things, which is very much looks a lot like the trust that they should have in God alone. Paging first contact from Star Trek. You know. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. And hey, we're going to actually talk about the science fiction genre a little bit further down the line, too. This is all, there is a modern mythology that has been built, and people buy into that, whether they realize it or not. And right. so Roddenberry becomes almost an inspired author to certain people. Or or Arthur C. Clarke or anybody. Nobody's taken Robert Heinlein's governmental theories to practice, though, unfortunately. But <laughs> that is a subject for another time. Um, <laughs> we'll do that one on shortwave. Uh, so yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah, uh, yeah, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's not a good time to talk about armed libertarian revolt just just right now. <laughs> so. But um. <laughs> So anyway, we'll put that behind the paywall. So, <laughs> right. So now, now we've come to this and we have to, it's going to take us a little while to unpack, to unpack this here. So we're going to present sort of the history of the UFO movement in very dry and neutral terms, although we will pronounce judgment eventually in the episode, but we have to frame this have to frame this discussion in terms that the people understand. And namely, that's this kind of 1950s flying saucer, gray aliens understanding. Because when you say UFO, that's what people assume. That's what people think of. That's how the, that's how the discussion is framed. So as you heard in the beginning, there are accounts of unidentified flying objects going back at least to the 16th century. Although probably the earliest is from the fourth century. But that's an account of something that happened you know, even before that. So you do have a few accounts here and there. But really beginning in the 16th century, you have like the Nuremberg one. And I don't know how much detail we're able to go into these, not too much. The Nuremberg one's interesting because if you read about it in books, it'll usually just say, well, they saw a big black object in the sky. Well, no, <laughs> it's actually much more detailed than that. And we thank, we're thankful that these men uh, were able to write down detailed descriptions of what they saw. Um, just uh, five years or so after that, you have similar celestial phenomena observed over Basel, for example, in Switzerland. And it's this, you know, kind of the same idea of uh, these these balls fighting um, back and forth. Very consistent cases, right? So a few more, you know, in the 1600s and then 1700s, and then it pops up again in the 19th century. So you have these big balloons seen in the sky in Texas or the airships that were already mentioned. That's in the late 19th century. That's 1897. People are claiming to see this. And the reactions are kind of what you could expect. You know, uh, some people saying, huh, that's interesting. Other people mm -hmm. saying, no, it's pure, it's purely fake. Um, it's a hoax. Right. It's mass hy hypnosis. And we do want to leave room for hoaxes or, or people simply misidentifying something. Right. right, that's certainly possible, but that that also doesn't discount the thousands of other accounts that we have. And let me just move forward here and get up to World War II, then we can pause and do a little more detail. So, between 1916 and 1926, you have over 1,300 of these like flying objects reported by pilots in the sky. So, as as man is first beginning to take flight at really large numbers and using things for like business and shipping and that sort of thing, people start to see more of these. Very, very interesting to me. So you have sightings all over, like, say, Russia in the 20s, all the way up to the 40s. France, there's a UFO craze before 1947. And in Sweden, uh, Germany, I mean, it's just interesting. These all, it, they start to pop up more and more. 
You have um, the World War II, the so-called Foo Fighters, metallic spheres that they see following their aircraft. So these sightings, uh, really beginning in the 19th century, are becoming more and more and more common until we hit World War II, and then the craze really, or post-World War II, then the craze really kicks off. Anything we want to add before we move on to some specific cases here? Well, I just, maybe this is just a question for you, Willie, something I thought of. What would be the relationship between these sightings and, say, cultural expressions going on at the time you have, like, War of the Worlds being written, you know, and also, well, I mean, I, that'd be, what, the late 1800s, and, of course, the uh, the famous radio reading yeah. of it. I mean, is that right. is that feeding into this? Is this related? I mean, how, how does that well, work? Well, okay, this, this is how I tend to think of this. Feel free to disagree, Adam or Zellman. So... What what these fictional accounts do is they might feed the hysteria in some way so people think they see things, but really it provides a lens through which people may interpret yeah. earlier phenomenon. So so if someone in 16th century sweet Switzerland sees you know flashing balls in the sky, and someone in 1920s England sees the same phenomenon, well, what the science fiction genre was able to do or the pulp fiction genre to be, you know, more broad there. It gave them a lens that they could interpret it through. Yep. So now, now, okay, this is clearly uh, saucer men, or this is clearly visitors from another planet, whereby the Christian in 16th century Europe would interpret it uh, through a biblical lens. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's totally right. Because what's interesting is that when you get these sightings, especially the time of the, the mystery airships, so predating the Wright brothers, are very interesting right. because you have a totally different media environment. And there are a couple crashes in Texas where, for instance, they report, well, the, the, the pilot who was not exactly human died and we gave him, quote, a Christian burial. Or a man <laughs> right. and a woman appeared and this is a big part of 19th century American speculation because American culture is so densely biblical in a way that I don't think Europe really equals in the 19th century. And so a man and a woman come and the, and the observers in rural, rural Texas say, oh, they're, they're part of the lost tribes of the house of Israel. Right. So right. what 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 somebody like H.G. Wells is doing, who is already invested in evolution, who's already invested in atheism, is he's saying, look, I have a material, scientific, evolutionary vision of what the world will be. And that gives people who no longer have knowledge of divine revelation a way to understand weird things that no one has ever been able to control. And this is going to be something that's very important to remember, how these things control our interpretation of it. What looks different when we view this phenomenon through the lens of the scriptures, through the lens of Christian revelation and the testimony of church history? That's going to be what we're going to unpack a little bit later in the episode, because that's what's very important for the Christian. We have gotten very good at compartmentalizing things as Christians. Instead of viewing things wholly through revelation— and by that, I mean the, the revelation of God, not the book of Revelation, although that certainly is part of that, as we'll get to. But we can say, we, we want to pretend as if I can put science, quote-unquote science over here, complete, completely separate from God's supernatural revelation, right? Or I can put, say, pop culture over here, mm -hmm. and we can just kind of piece these things out and sort of separate them and try to be neutral in a sense. But I don't think that a Christian worldview allows for neutrality in the way that we use it today. Yeah. That it, that we have to view certain things or indeed everything through the scriptures that that interpretation, that wisdom from God must guide how we how we understand things lest we fall into into lies, superstitions or something like that. Right. So yeah, but uh, great question Zellen and we're coming up on the first break. We'll be right back with more word fitly spoken. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. 
Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zoe and Heidi and Adam Kuntz, talking about aliens, UFOs, and spooky stuff. Well, we thank you all for um, bearing with us as we as we laid out what we're going to discuss here. And as promised, we're going to dig a little bit more into the history of UFOs, and then we'll get into aliens, uh, alien beings, um, in just a few moments. So when people talk about UFOs, one of the most famous colloquial terms is the flying saucer. And that is tied to one of the most notable uh, UFO sightings that happened in the summer of 1947. On the 24th of June, a civilian pilot by the name of Kenneth Arnold saw nine objects flying in formation near Mount Rainier. He estimates they're going over 1,200 miles per hour. I'm not a pilot. I don't know how that formula works, but they were going fast. He claims them that the objects looked like saucers. So they were sort of shaped like uh, saucers. So they called them flying saucers. And the term stuck. I mean, early on, they were they had all kinds of names, right? Bogies, you know, uh, but that's kind of a broader term. So that's, that's, that's where we get the modern use of flying saucer. They either look like saucers or they're flying in a saucer-like formation, whatever that means. So... And then the craze really kicks off. So now we're post-World War II. This is 1947. There are such a number of sightings by pilots, both civilian and military, that the military complex begins to look into them in earnest. And so the first, not the most notable, but the first delving into this would be the United States Air Force Regulation 200-2, where they basically define UFOs as any airborne object which, by performance, aerodynamic characteristics, or unusual features, does not conform to any presently known aircraft or missile type, or which cannot be positively identified as a familiar object. So basically, how the military sees it in the late 1940s and in in early 50s is, we don't know what this is. Cold War is happening. This very much could be a national security threat. Right. So they, they take these things seriously. They don't just say, well, all of our pilots are nuts or every civilian pilot is silly for seeing this. And of course, there are a number of people who are afraid to report these kinds of things because that's a pretty quick way to get grounded. You lose your wings, right? When you start hallucinating up in the sky. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, there are similar organizations to the different U.S. Air Force committees or task forces in pretty much all countries with a major military at this time, including right. the so, Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah, the Soviet Union and any all the major European countries are basically seeing the same phenomenon, by the way, with very right. similar reports coming out. As well, the, the Brazilians as well, who at the time and for their size have a large military. So it's it's more or less worldwide. And it's it's huge in starting after, right after World War II. Right. And I think part of that is military technology and aerial technology just really skyrockets after this. Yeah, right, um, so, right. Like, right. Liter- like literally. <laughs> lit- yeah, lit- right. Literally. Thanks, Werner von Braun. <laughs> <laughs> Operation Paperclip. So, so the technology rapidly improves, and so there are just more people in the sky. Uh, there's just a whole lot more going on up there. And and so people are seeing things, and the, and the government really has to to take it seriously. Or, or I shouldn't just say, of course, not our government, but various governments. Well, the next and most notable thing then would be what's known as Project Blue Book. Adam, why don't you tell us what that was? Project Blue Book runs for over a decade from the late 40s through, I believe, the early 60s. And it has several different directors. It was named... Blue Book after the exam books that are still used in a lot of places for 
you know, final exams because they were supposed to be taking a, a neutral look at the phenomenon or the phenomena, let's say. And they were going to take it as seriously as a final exam would be taken by a college student. This has varying levels of investment and personnel. A guy I've mentioned already, Edward Ruppelt, is the first and most famous of the directors of the project. And uh, the project actually, if you want to use the word, converts most of its participants from skeptics to at least a position of neutrality. Now, the the issue of credulity, kind of wide-eyed credulity, the sort of thing that will give rise from the 50s onward to what are called by scholars UFO religions, is Mm -hmm. not really in bounds for this project. But the idea that there are things that are occurring that are not necessarily explicable and are also not under anyone's recognizable control is pretty widely accepted by people. Like, And you can find... Ruppelt wrote a book after he got out of the Air Force about really the history of the whole phenomenon of UFOs, a term he coins. And you can find that for free online um, if you're interested. Right. But it's it eventually winds up in a very kind of vanilla way. And like a lot of these inquiries, even down to the UK's inquiry in the early 2000s, when it ends, it ends quickly. And a lot of times right. uh, their evidence is not released to the public. Yeah, it's it's interesting that Blue Book lasts as long as it does because, right. I mean, it's, it's predecessors. I mean, really, it's all kind of one big program. But you have Project Sign and Project Grudge before that. You know, there's another one that lasts for maybe four years or so because people were seeing green fireballs everywhere. That'd be Project Twinkle, I think. Mm-hmm. Brazil had one in the 70s just called, I think my Portuguese is okay here, but it's like Operation Saucer. If you, yep. <laughs> <laughs> very, very straightforward down there in Brazil. Thank you. Right. <laughs> I mean, Uruguay did it, did something in the late 80s. Um, France also it, in the 70s. So this is not I something I don't believe just... Uruguay is real. I'm just going to go on the record. <laughs> <Right>. so. <laughs> <laughs> bring, bring Uruguay to me. Right. It is. It, I, I, do you know anybody from Uruguay? Have, do you know anybody that's ever been there? <laughs> uh. Uruguay is a psyop, confirmed. Right. Thank you. You, you heard it here fo- first, folks. So, yeah. And, and you mentioned the findings, especially of Blue Book being vanilla. I mean, in summary, it's no evidence of a threat of national security, no evidence of technology beyond modern capabilities, and no evidence of extraterrestrials. Which is fine, but it also is that's a very interesting way of saying we don't know what the heck this is. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, they're 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 pretty neutral. Yeah. And and they don't come out and say, well, it's all hoaxes, it's just there's a lot of stuff we can't explain. Right. Now, in all of these studies, and even the the civilian led ones, there is room for people who simply hallucinate or lie or misidentify something. Right. You know, I mean, it's not like we're all out with our telescopes every night knowing what every satellite is and things like that. So these things do creep in. But even the military admits that there's a large number of these that we cannot account for, that we 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 just simply cannot explain. And that and that goes that goes down to to today, doesn't I mean, can you talk about the US Navy stuff in, you know, the last 20 years? You mean with regard to um the like the recent videos released? Yeah. 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 Well, okay, so if you look at, I mean, there have been a number of just UFO or U.S.-related UFO investigations. Blue Book already mentioned, Twinkle, a few of these other ones. There's the ghost rocket stuff and from Greece and Sweden. Brookings Report in 1960, the, there was even a private like RAND Corporation study on this. And then there is the Advanced Aviation Threat Identification Program, which was a program that lasted from the mid-2000s up until about the year 2012, and it was made public in 2017. And so thanks to the Freedom of Information Act, uh, we were able to get a number of these things. And so even in modern, I mean, relatively recent history, we have had a number of sightings of unidentified flying objects. And the interesting thing about now is our camera technology is much better, so a lot more of them are caught on camera and not just like shaky kind of Brazilian home movie looking things. <laughs> so, so the Navy with the NSA and whatever, 
other agencies are involved, actually recently released these videos, you know, taken by our equipment on our crafts showing objects they cannot identify. So the government feels safe enough to reveal these things and say, we still don't know what it is. Did you have anything else you wanted to add about the Navy, the Navy stuff or the AATIP? I, I think I think significantly it's just still sort of ongoing, although maybe not at the the rate that that these things were reported in, say, the, the mid 1950s. Well, yeah, I mean, right. But I mean, you still had 2007 to 2012, a pretty, you know, pretty active program there. So who knows right. what's what's going on right now as we're looking toward Mars and other things. I mean, in in, in 2011, the White House did release and a, a statement saying, hey, we don't have any evidence of any life outside of our planet. And nobody's contacted us. So they'll still occasionally release statements. But anytime someone hears something about this, they, I mean, they like, okay, this is silly. This is just crackpots asking about this. So, but then the government will then turn around and be like, yeah, we officially disavow any notion of other creatures. But anyway, here's this video of this thing we can't explain. So good luck right. figuring it out. Right. So yeah, it is still going on and the signings are still happening. And now we're in an age where people are used to advanced aerial technology. So people know what a jet looks like, for instance, and people know what a satellite looks like or, or these sorts of things. And there is still some very bizarre aerial phenomenon happening. May well be unclassified military technology. That's perfectly fine. But wherever you stand on it, um, there's a lot of stuff in the sky happening still that we don't know and that the government at least officially says we don't know. It right. may exist. It may not. In addition to that sort of stuff, there's, you know, from I think the 50s onward, certainly into the 60s, there's another phenomenon connected with aliens that is going to be a lot more important for ultimately where we're going to come down on this and and that is alien abductions can you can you talk about that Willie yeah absolutely so once you go from seeing flying saucers well somebody's got to pilot them and this is where we get into the phenomenon of the alien abduction and this one is much more controversial because people can admit hey i could see something in the sky i don't know i don't know what it is so it's unidentified but now we've gone down into people actually having contact with entities within these crafts, either from the craft itself or most notably actually being taken onto the craft and having some sort of contact with these people. This is very interesting. So this would be called an alien abduction. And there are a couple of notable examples we'll talk about here. But I want to point this out. When we go from like pilots seeing spheres flying in the sky, some of them get scared, but mostly they're not truly frightened, okay? But when we get into the abductions, we have people who are totally in fear of these things, and mm -hmm. there is a psychic element to it. They are like communicating, for example, without moving their mouths, right? And they, they exert some kind of control over the person's body so that now the person is no longer in control of their arms and legs. They have to do whatever the voice of this thing in their head is telling them to do. So it, it goes from from sort of a scientific observance to a, a a truly frightening experience. So the character of an abduction versus a UFO sighting is very different, in my opinion. That's where we go there. So, all right. I mean, we don't want to talk about like Roswell and and that crash. Um, there's been enough done on that, and that's you know we could do a whole episode just on that. What was there? But something like the Betty and Barney Hill abduction, that's an early, very notable case of alien abduction from 1961, probably the first uh, nationally reported case of alien abduction. Mm -hmm. And uh, Adam, uh, you want to tell us a little bit about that one? Well, Betty and, Betty and Barney were a couple in uh, New Hampshire and were abducted while, while driving at night. Uh, I... I I, I find I find their story their story was really promoted. I mean, Barney died a few years after, but Betty lived until two thousand four, and so had decades and decades in which to promote the idea. They were both, if the adjective can be used, devout 
Unitarian Universalists. <laughs> and and there is a there therein There's lies a commonality. Thing. Right. I guess I guess. I mean, maybe in New England, uh, it, therein lies a commonality that you're gonna find, I think, in a lot of the organizations devoted to investigation not only of aerial phenomena, but especially of abductions, which is that there's always there is almost always some sort of fringy religious element to it all. And the messages will vary over time, but I think they fall generally into two two categories. And this goes all the way back to the 19th century, because a lot of the visitors from the airships would spread what sounded to be sort of typically late 19th century, very much pre-World War I, messages of hope and peace. Right. We're going we're to lead the world to world peace. On the other hand, after the Second World War, a very different sort of message predominates, and that is there's not necessarily anything ideological about it, but the, but the, the entities are there in order to, to torture, to enslave, to abuse. Well, this is where you begin to see a couple of differences in the in the types of contact. So there's like, you know, close encounters of the first kind, of the second kind, and of the fourth kind, or, you know, the third kind, rather. That that phrase is kind of in popular culture. But what you start to see with some of these abduction things, I mean, people taking aboard crafts, you know, uh, or lured onto them, depending on how the story goes, experimented mm-hmm. on. And a lot of times, so say in some early UFO stories, the UFO would actually... Um, if the people saw the craft and got close to it, it would leave burns in the ground. It would leave some kind of mark, some kind of damage. Well, now in the abduction stories, in certain cases, these people are being left maimed right, by these visitors or by these entities so that they have scarring on them. And a lot of times in, in these these accounts, what you have are people then they communicate with these entities and then the people become obsessed with UFO culture. And aliens and that sort of thing to the point that they can't focus on anything else. Now, it could be mental illness, but this is certainly the result of a traumatic experience. But it is very telling that these entities have a message. And the message is never repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) Right. Not even once. (laughs) Ever. Even close. And and, and it does drive people away. I mean, you can sift through um, a number of these things. And and it's 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 interesting. Now, that kind of um, we'll get to some more talk about alien abductions here, but this really does lead us back into the subject of the science fiction genre, because even if the aliens are benevolent or even if they're malicious, they're always portrayed as more enlightened or advanced, right? Than man, and so you end up with uh, ancient aliens. Okay, and Eric Von Daniken, which I am putting firmly in science fiction for a reason. (laughs) But the basic thesis there is that primitive man is stupid. He needs help from an advanced power to build anything. And so that theory is is rooted in unbelief. Yeah, and, 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 and notice how well it tracks with an extremely mainstream idea that humanity is progressing. Which is the, progressing, right? Which, which is the opposite of the biblical idea that we are degenerating. Something that's referenced right many times by Luther but I have a and smartphone. Right? Yeah, I have a smartphone, <laughs> so I must be better than my great grandfather. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, and and so yeah, this is exactly right. This idea that man's getting better, and so now these beings will come, which will show us an even greater way. And so a very good um, example of this terrible thing is in Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End, where uh, the aliens come up, you know, they have kind of terrifying forms, but the whole point is to get man to quit being man. So it's a dehumanization that happens. So there's a new race of humans that pop up in the book. They have the appearance of children, but their faces have no personality. And they're going to be guided to yet more and greater evolutionary forms. And so this idea that man is progressively evolving or can evolve with outside help from these things to something greater, to, to reach the height of their experience. And for somebody like Clark and for many other writers in science fiction, that destroys the individual, that losing your personality and everybody becoming part of one sort of 
entity or one way of being. That's just basically Eastern philosophy or certain, certain Eastern philosophies, which would be a doctrine of demons. Yeah. And so you have that. So what, what, what else do we have in science fiction? These creatures, they don't communicate with normal human means, or at least not means known to us. And, and so all of this is exploding in popular culture. People are seeing these things in the skies. People are claiming to be visited by these entities, and it's all pointing toward this same goal, that humanity, they say, is getting better, and that these things can show us new things, if not destroy us. But even if they destroy us, they're still more advanced. Yeah, and the criterion is all, is always an issue of greater intelligence, whether of the beings Correct. being more intelligent than man, or man progressing in a sort of 1970s version of what we now call transhumanism to become, with these beings' Correct. help, something other than man, uh, transhumanism. Right. So, Right, and with transhumanism is certainly a part of this and a part of what's going on. We'll talk a little bit about that more as we sort of pull the mask off of this, but I think you can see where this, <laughs> I think the audience knows where this is going. And, you know, we're not using, we're not really giving it the justice that it deserves to try to unpack all of this because there simply is so much going on. But yeah, it's 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 a dangerous thing to think or to, or to teach that man's goal is to cease being man. It's to transcend to something higher because that denies not only creation, but it denies the gospel. It denies the whole point of the passion of Christ, <laughs> you know, right. or, or excuse me, the incarnation of Christ. I mean, right. And so, but that, that is where we're at here. It is, it is man's attempt to escape the world through some form with a higher guide, a guide who knows more than we do. Right. But that often treats us like any other animal. But should that surprise us in what is basically a religion that denies humanity? I mean, to be to be taken up into a craft and, and experimented on medically is another form of dehumanization. Because it shows that to these people, we are just cattle. Right. To these entities. So... Well, we're coming up on the next break. Any other point we want to make as we end on this dark, dark uh, turn? Well, maybe I'll just end up with, uh, you know, Cousin Eddie going straight up the beam in Independence Day. You know, here I am, boys. So <laughs> that's what I celebrate every July 4th. <laughs> I'm back. Anyway, that was a great documentary. <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. But he said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to Word Fitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi and Adam Kuntz to talk about aliens and their implications for us. Now, we've talked a little bit about the history, gave a few examples, um, sort of the context of how we get to the modern interpretation of these things. So let's take a look at a Christian response to this. And the first question we, we need to ask ourselves is, is this all a hoax? What do you guys think? I think the the key word in your question is all, because I think it would be uh, highly arrogant to take all of this reported observation and experience from throughout recorded human history and say, yeah, I know it's all a hoax. And I think the the only person that can be that arrogant is 
someone who is a thoroughgoing rationalist who claims to believe only what his eyes can see, which is not what a Christian does, not how a Christian understands the world. So I can't say it's all a hoax. I can say it's possible that pretty much all of it is a hoax. Who even knows? I think deception is at the heart of all of it, um, but I can't say that it's all a hoax. I think that's the kind of the key way of putting it, Adam, is that it if even if it is all at bottom a deception, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's all necessarily fake, because deception is what's driving all of it from top to bottom. Right. You know, right. To right. deceive man to becoming something less than what he is or to take him right. away from what he should be believing. Right. And, you know, before we, we dig deeper into this, we have to understand that we do believe as Christians, there are invisible beings that are at work in the world. There are only two types of intelligent entities in the universe beside God. That would be man and the spirit beings that we call angels or demon, demons, depending upon their allegiance. So aside from God, two types of intelligent entities. I think that's pretty much the case the, the Bible makes. It's hard to get around that. That man is different from animals and that angels and demons certainly lurk. So right there, any Christian who would say, and some do, have you ever bumped into a Christian who says there are no more demons? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, practically, that's almost everybody. But yeah, even theoretically, I have, I have run yeah. into that even in even in communions that claim to be Bible believing, not to speak. Yeah, of the yeah, yeah. Don't. This isn't like some mainline, like liberal elite. It's uh, like just a, you know, borderline fundamentalist groups would say it. It's really strange. <laughs> right. Right. It, it, I, I have found in mainline groups in which I include theologically the modern Roman Catholic Church, many affirmations of the reality of extraterrestrial beings that are neither men nor angels. There's an ELCA systematician named Ted Peters who, you know, if you look him up in a podcast app, uh, you're going to find him discussing his search for aliens and his, uh, his desire to sit in, in a pew next to an alien someday. I mean, quite, quite literally. It's, it's bizarre. <laughs> like some of the Roman Catholic and, and other authors who talk about this have even posited that somehow, despite the universe being created, but somehow that the aliens may be immune from original sin, or excuse me, not affected right. by original sin. Right. Uh, right. Just very strange claims. And, but there, there go, but there you go, right? There's a, the, what would that be then? Ah, the mysterious being from the sky that is better than us. That can show us a better right. way because he didn't fall like Adam did. It's the same thing, just with this kind of pious cast over it. Right. And and this is going to happen because Christians have moved away from viewing the world through the revelation of God. So the wisdom of the church, the wisdom of the scriptures is cast aside uh, because it's seen as passe or not, somehow not satisfactory. And so we, we look for answers elsewhere. And I think that's what you see in that. Totally, because I, I also think that when when things get classified as sort of like pop culture, there may even be a hesitancy on on like a preacher's part to discuss it as, as, as we're doing with UFOs today, because it's almost like it's it's beneath discussion or something. The difficulty with that is that if people watch enough of, you know, whatever the History Channel or YouTube or whatever they're going to be affected by the fact that these questions are treated as real or obvious. Like, like the history channel, when they talk about this, will often treat ancient aliens as if it's just sort of like hidden, but obviously true history. And there, <laughs> there's a, there's a website that, that, you know, destroys the most common version of this. The website is Sitchin is written by a guy who actually <laughs> knows the ancient, Zechariah Sitchin claimed to know. But I mean, if you don't talk about the stuff that people are actually imbibing, then what happens is that functionally, almost the entirety of their life in, the, in, in our time exists outside the purview, outside the discussion, outside the judgment of God's word. Right. And so with that in mind, let's take a look at, well, some of this alien activity, and let's, let's see what we think the Bible might have to say about it. So Modern alien jargon is basically repackaged mediumistic activity from the 19th century. So what, what do we have? So you might have a seance in Harry Houdini's day. Well, I guess he gets a little past the 19th century, of course. But the idea that one can communicate with supernatural powers, right? 
So that's already forbidden in scripture. So in prior times, you'd have mediums or witches who would who would be trying to give you this hidden knowledge. Now you have scientists, for example, who are saying that these beings would be the the ones who would give us the secret knowledge or would be scientists, right? Or sometimes kind of cult leaders too. We don't want to, we don't want to forget about the great seventies and eighties UFO cults <laughs> and nineties in one it, notable case. Yeah. Yeah. Heaven, heaven's gate. I mean, I, I, I think that right. one thing to notice is how the, the use of science for almost the entire population that isn't actually involved in observation of nature and formulation of hypotheses on the basis of observation for basically all the rest of us science functions after we get out of you know 10th grade chemistry as a justification for things or a way of assuring that something is true right look at how the word has been used in the discussion of covid right because of science uh, possibly 25 million californians could die said gavin newsom you know months ago when scripture has a vocabulary for something, it's like it's obvious. So if if they were running around saying, hi, we're witches, then Christians would be like, okay, I know what to think about this, right? right. Go back and listen to our Halloween episode. But since they come and they say, we are Anunnaki or we are whatever kind of beings, and it's cloaked with an, with an aura of technology, it does not appear to have any bearing on someone's soul, even if the activity and the effects are exactly the same. Yeah, absolutely. That is kind of what's happening here when people claim uh, to see these beings. Now, let's go back a little bit and talk about alien abductions in light of of uh, of the scriptures. Okay, so aliens are typically depicted as humanoid-ish. <laughs> they usually walk on two legs and have arms and a head. I think um, you know, Zelwyn, You you probably even know this. The most if if I asked you what's a space alien look like in modern culture, how would you describe it? <laughs> you know, kind of gray, big, uh, big eyes. You know, little tiny mouth, that sort of thing. Big head. You know, I mean, it's 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 the typical picture. I mean, you can even find emojis on your phone with this kind of depiction. You know, this is this is what aliens look like. So, yeah, I, I mean, just just this kind of humanoid like you said humanoid ish but definitely different enough that they don't really look much like us but enough to be disconcerting that uncanny valley kind of thing you know yeah right Uh, big head big eyes you know there are uh, some slight variations in a lot of these descriptions but it is relatively consistent and uh you know I, i always like when scientists try to explain this away like i could understand that they said it was somebody was hallucinating or it was a lucid dream, you know, or they were drunk or something like that. But then they say things like, it was probably owls. It was probably big owl, owls that these people saw and they didn't know. So they so they thought it was the Mothman. Or like in Hopkinsville, where there is a prolonged Hopkinsville, Kentucky. That's a very interesting alien encounter. Because when the aliens show up at the farmhouse in Kentucky, they, they start firing on the aliens. <laughs> and... <laughs> And uh, they describe these aliens, they call the police, and the police just find a few things out of place, but they can't find any creatures. Then the aliens come back, and one of the ways they tried to explain this away was rednecks being attacked by owls, by great horned owls. So I don't know. I mean, that's a little funny to me. Yeah, but anyway, so these big-eyed, big-head, kind of gray creatures are sometimes green, you know, depending on how he's depicted. Mm -hmm. Here's something that's very telling. Alistair Crowley, the self-proclaimed wickedest man who ever lived, you are familiar with, you too are, I know, a uh, practicing, we don't want to say Satanist, that would be, I mean, it would be true in an objective sense, but he would describe himself as a witch, right, as a uh, practicer, a practitioner of black magic. Well, he had a spirit being named Lamb who he claimed to visit him. Are you guys uh, familiar with this story? Yeah. Yeah. So Lamb, it is Lamb, L-A-M. Lamb comes to visit him. He draw, There's a picture of Lamb, of what Lamb looks like. You can Google it if you want. It looks almost identical to the modern or the, you know, the very recent depictions of gray aliens. Now, that's a heck of a coincidence in my book. Yeah, especially because Crowley, Crowley predates a lot of the yes. popular yeah, knowledge Crowley predates of a lot this of subject. It, yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, before they were being described this way, I mean, decades before, 
He has right. he allegedly has contact with this demon, and it looks just like one of them. Now, if we if we're stretching you, your credulity a little too far, there, well, that's all right. Guess what? We live in a world with angels and demons, and our Lord warns us in the Bible that demons would try to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And so, all throughout history you basically have demons as being invisible except in certain cases. And they can take on the form of something. So you have that in the Bible. I mean, right there in Genesis, the devil takes on the form of a serpent. But all throughout uh, church history, you have examples of people being influenced by demons. And it's very similar to alien abduction things. They come and they tell him, hey, if uh, they have this dazzling light and they'll say, we will give you some kind of knowledge if you will just follow us. You know, we're higher spirits. I mean, there's examples, of course, from like the Desert Fathers and St. Anthony. There's even a very interesting one uh, regarding a monk uh, staying with uh, St. Martin of Tours. And it's very similar to the modern alien abduction account, except the culture was so Christianized and you do have these great saints of the church in these in a lot of these uh, stories where they recognize it for what it is. They see it as a demonic deception. If it's getting a little weird here, I mean, here's what we believe as Christians. We believe that we are tempted. Now, our greatest enemy is ourselves, but there is an external temptation that does come from the devil. And the demons have so many different ways in which they tempt us. And it certainly seems that they have tempted people in the past by appearing to them in some form. Or, as is common in historical accounts of this, you have a disembodied voice. So there's a voice whispering in their ear telling them to do something. Well, guess what? This happens in a lot of UFO cases, too. So the person sees the alien, and then now they are communicating telepathically with the alien so that they don't even have to see it, but it's there whispering in its ear. It might be mental illness, but it's also diabolical. Well, I th I think that actually is really hitting on a very important point here. And I w also wanted to point out, too, you know, you're talking earlier about these aliens, you know, mutilating or hurting. We see examples of demons doing that even in the Gospels, you know, casting into fire right. or to water right. or binding right. yep. the woman. Yep. The Gadarene demoniac harming himself. Yeah, exactly. Although I think it's very interesting that, you know, talking in terms of temptation, because, you know, where does the modern man put most of his hopes and, you know, aspirations, you know, his driving forces, except in the technological, in the future, you know, what is above him, what he thinks he can gain. And so I think it's going to be very telling that uh, demons would appear to man in this way as a kind of, oh, you know, we are the embodiment of what you are trying to be, you know, apart from God, this kind of technological driving force, uh, you know, above and beyond, you know, endless progress kind of thing. We're just a few steps ahead of you. Right. So I think right. that, you know, yeah. that that temptation actually makes a lot of sense. Right. And I, I sure. don't think you have to render a verdict on every single case, you know, lights Absolutely. in this force, because it's very similar to how what you want to watch are what are the actual fruits of these things it's very similar in this way to scientology which is in its own way a ufo religion it is explicitly science fictional so. in its beginning but the significant thing is not so much that l ron hubbard necessarily believed all of it we're not claiming that that demons believe in everything that they're doing or that that's really the point the point is that people are practically they are deceived they want to be deceived, right. and they are deceived. Yeah, the point is to draw people away from God. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There are people who who buy into this because they are so deceived. That's the that's the thing. We can't become spiritually haughty because we could see someone going to Scientology and thinking, "Wow, who would buy into that?" But any of us could be tempted away into something. That that is how the darkened mind works. It will latch on to right. these sorts of things. Because it doesn't have the light of God. Well, it wouldn't. I mean, I think it's fair to say, too, that the one who very quickly and kind of flippantly dismisses everything as being just a hoax is equally being deceived. Because, you know, what if we are dealing with something beyond, you know, our normal experience, something demonic, and we just kind of dismiss it as saying, oh, well, it can't be real because there aren't really things like demons. What does that do to, you know, our belief in the scriptures? 
which clearly proclaim to us that there are demons, right? Right, and that supernatural things happen. I, I think that that is why this very deep story that many, many people implicitly believe and haven't necessarily said out loud that everything is gradually getting better and we are wiser than our great-grandfathers were. It's a very anti-scriptural story, some idea that somehow human beings are getting better even though they remain a mass of damned sinners uh, apart from Christ's Mm -hmm. grace. That story informs people thinking, oh, well, all of this is a hoax. None of this is real. It's all psychology, which, you know, Carl Jung said very eloquently, but I think a lot of people believe implicitly. He also wrote a book on uh, UFOs, by the way. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> he interpreted them as somehow, and, and he referenced these, these ancient cases. And I think we want to come back to how, you know, 16th century Lutherans interpreted stuff because Jung was talking about the case in Basel from the 16th century. And he said, Oh, this was this is a this is a kind of a symbolic projection involving the evils of uh, marriage to one's cousins. You know, I mean, I mean, are are you t- is that not the most modern example of our modern? Su- I mean, we have superstitions concerning psychology because there's something at the base base of being a modern person that is fundamentally incredibly arrogant, meaning yeah. there is not that is not ultimately outside my control. So if it looks like it's outside my control, it must be fake. Right. And if I may, to, to tack on to that point, we want to control everything. One, because we think we're getting smarter. We think the world's getting better. Right. And one of these symptoms is that every man does what it's right in his own eyes. And that getting better means the elimination of suffering for these people. So mm-hmm. even Christians forget that suffering is necessary for Christians. That suffering is part of the Christian life in this world. So we will all suffer. It is anti-Christian to try to avoid suffering at all costs. I'm not saying you can't take an ibuprofen or you you know you don't get that bunion surgery. That's not what I mean. But this idea that we can somehow permanently transcend what it means to live in the world. And so what do these alien beings give people but some form of escapism? And now, even now, we are totally living inside of a virtual world, oftentimes chemically altering our bodies so that we can avoid the things of the world. This is all demonic because it causes us to see the world as something other than what God uh, shows us. So that we are seeing the world through totally artificial means. And it's absolutely destroying us spiritually and really physically now too. And it's all part of what we were promised in the scriptures. And I think even the Reformation, Adam, I think you'll agree with this, teaches that things aren't really aren't getting progressively better. No, no. I mean, you can find many places, Luther and Melanchthon talking about the world wearing out in their time. And, and, and that is, it's interesting how people interpret that down to today where they'll say, oh, Luther, you know, ha ha ha. He thought the world was ending because the Turks were invading Europe. We can recognize that maybe things are even worse now. I mean, the Turks now, you know, they have their mosques in the places where there used to be churches. So we can recognize that the world didn't end in Luther's day, but I don't think he was fundamentally wrong to see anti-Christian power and its rise as a sign of the degeneration of the world under the power of sin, that the world is wearing out and the fabric of these present things and this present darkness and the powers that love to control this darkness, that these things are all passing away as the light of Christ comes more and more upon us and gets closer. Right. And, you know, um, just looking ahead, you know, we, we had a whole section we planned on talking about end times, but there's so much to unpack here with aerial signs and everything. I think we're going to have to do a whole separate episode just on the signs of the times and, uh, and, and visit this subject again. So if you guys are okay with that, we'll, we'll save some of this because um, there is a lot of scripture posting to do. Jesus talks a lot about what the end of the world is going to look like. So we have to be able to discern these things. We're going to go a few minutes over time because there are, there's something very important here. Yeah, the world isn't getting better. Of course, the gospel is still going out. And as bad as the world gets, our Lord Jesus Christ will return to vindicate us. You are not meant to fear these demons uh, masquerading as aliens. What we're trying to tell you is to be aware of, that they're around you. And you have mighty gifts. You have the Bible, you have the sacraments, you have prayer, the gift of discernment, all of these things that can 
that can that you can use to fight against these evil forces in the world. But now we're talking about aliens, and that might seem a little bit passe because it, it feels kind of very 90s all of a sudden. We think of like Fox Mulder or something. So my prediction is that you're going to see a little bit of a shift in this. Now, I could, I could very well be wrong, and they could pretend uh, to reveal the existence of aliens tomorrow. But there's now talk of so-called fourth-dimensional beings. So instead of calling them visitors from outer space, they're going to be visitors from other dimensions that are invisible and that can yeah. travel in various and different ways. And so what I'm warning you now, or making you aware of, is it's going to be the same phenomenon happening, but a different narrative. So you're seeing, you're starting to see the switch again. So from space aliens to now another type of being. So you take a certain drug, Joe Rogan, right. and you can now yep. you yep. can now talk to these. That is to these that is beings. exactly what I was thinking of. Is that psychotro because we no longer go to the stars? Psychotropics are where we can access these other dimensions, and yeah. that is we will be encouraged to open up our minds to the to these right. things. And people are taking these drugs and having very consistent experiences, which is very telling. Maybe I'll use a. Pop culture again, just to make your point, Willie, just because that seems to be my contribution to this conversation, but that's okay. <laughs> you think of like the, the 90s feel, like you said, with say like Independence Day, which I quoted earlier, you know, these aliens from a far off place within the universe, but still very phys physical compared to say Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, where these interdimensional beings were the ones who gave the Mayans all of their technology. You know, so I mean, I, I really do think that you are seeing this shift, like you say, and the, this belief that there are these parallel dimensions that are going to, I don't know, that, that there, are, there are creatures coming from these that are going to give us, you know, knowledge beyond our wildest expectations. But really, as yep. you say, it is all the same thing when you boil it down. So, Right. Well, guys, we're going to have to uh, save like the end times posting and stuff for another episode. Adam, I hope you'll come back and, and revisit yep, aliens good. and signs of the times very soon. Folks, if you have any questions about this, you know, feel free to go to the discussion group, uh, Word Fitly Posting, which I'll plug again right now. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at Word Fitly. Again, the discussion group, Word Fitly Posting. Uh, we'd love to hear uh, what you uh, think about this and if we need to expand on any subjects or anything. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi and Adam Kuntz. God love you and God bless. Jesus said, And there will be signs in the sun in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near.